everybody. Thanks so much for coming. We're going to go ahead and get started, but feel free to grab lunch and get settled in the meantime. I'm Laura Odato, the Cato Institute's Director of Government Affairs, and today we're going to be talking about the issue of guest worker visas. The immigration bill that was recently released is a great first step in a very important discussion on immigration issues. And so far, a lot of the conversation has focused on visas, with different groups weighing in on why we have them, why we might need more, and how we administer the program. Each of our panelists today have been involved in this issue in a significant way, and I look forward to hearing from each of them. Um, one quick administrative note, if you'd be kind enough to leave your CVC badges at the front desk when you leave, they will like us a lot more, and we can have more events in this great room. Our first speaker today is Greg Siskind. He's a founding partner of the immigration law firm Siskind Susser PC, and he has been practicing immigration law since 1990. Greg is the author of several books, including the annually published J-1 Visa Guidebook and the recently published Employer's Immigration Compliance Desk Reference. He is also the author of a number of immigration-related pieces of legislation, and he's testified in front of the House Immigration Subcommittee. He was recently named by Chambers and Partners as one of the top 25 immigration lawyers in the U.S., and he is one of the founders of Visa Law International, the Global Alliance of Immigration Lawyers. Following that will be Tim Kane, who is the chief economist at the Hudson Institute, and his research on entrepreneurship and job creation has been widely cited, including in the 2011 Economic Report of the President. He has served in multiple executive and scholarly roles at think tanks and universities, and his forthcoming book, Balance, which I think you'll be hearing a little bit more about from Tim, will examine the economic decline of great powers. As the lead author of the, I'm sorry, as the founding director of the International Economics at the Heritage Foundation, he was the lead author of the Heritage and Wall Street Journal Index of Economic Freedom. His commentary has appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, and other outlets, and he often provides analysis on the major networks as well. Our final speaker today is Alex Narasta, who is the Cato Institute's Immigration Policy Analyst at our Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Alex was previously the Immigration Policy Analyst at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, the Huffington Post, the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, and elsewhere. And as Alex continues to do this work, I think his bio will get too long for me to read, and I will just abbreviate heavily. Alex has also appeared on Fox News and numerous TV and radio stations across the country. And now I will turn things over to Greg. Can you all hear me okay? You can present up here if you want or from the table, whichever you prefer. Um, I can, I can Are we on now? Okay, good. Um, so I'm here to give the perspective of a, uh, an actual immigration lawyer who has to deal with the Immigration Act uh, day in, day out as it affects clients. Um, and I spent um, from Wednesday morning last week uh, for four solid days plowing through the 844-page bill that uh, was introduced um, and, and putting it for the sake of our firm, but also for clients, um, a section-by-section -section summary. So as I was going through that process, um, I took notes on uh, provisions that I, I found in the bill, the provisions I really liked, and also things that people weren't talking that much about in the media. Uh, we've heard about the uh, registered provisional immigrants for the, that's the legalization program. We've heard a lot about STEM uh, professionals and stapling green cards to passports, uh, to, um, stapling green, uh, green cards to your diplomas. Um, we've heard about border enforcement, but I wanted to uh, use my time today to talk about some of the provisions that I found uh, during that exercise that I think people don't know as much about, which uh, I think um, will, will are, are provide good examples of all the good things that are in the immigration bill. Um, I know Alex is going to be talking about the, uh, the new W visa. Uh, there's actually a W-1, a W-2, and a W-3 visa. W-1 is for uh, non-agricultural guest workers, and W-2 and 3 are for the agricultural guest workers. But um, one of the things that I liked uh, in that 
Bill, that's something that's brand new for the immigration system, which we're not hearing very much about, is for the first time introducing a marketplace for services um, in employment-based immigration. And basically what the, uh, the W visa does is um, workers will apply for visas, um, employers will apply to a registry, and workers and employers can move through this, can move from employer to employer and employee to employee um, by participating in the system. The way it works right now for the various work visas that are out there is an employer has to find the specific employee abroad and the visa that the employee comes with is only valid for that particular employee and it's not the most efficient system um, as far as getting workers to the places where the jobs are and it's also not the uh, best system in terms of uh, for employers when they need to quickly find other workers if an employee doesn't make it in the country or they end up going elsewhere. So that's something that's new and I think uh, that added portability that we're going to have in the system is going to uh, be something interesting to watch and I'm very happy to see that. Um, there are a lot of problems in the, uh, in, in the W guest worker program as well and, and I know we're, you're going to be hearing more about them later. Um, but uh, the, uh, that is one something that is new, that's part of that, that I'm happy to see. Um, something that was a surprise to me when I was reading the bill, um, because no, I hadn't, hadn't heard about anybody actually working on the issue in years, was a retiree visa uh, that is in there. There is something new called the Y visa uh, that's in the bill, and it's basically, um, I think, going to really help the real estate industry, help states like Florida and California, some of the Sun Belt states. But, if you spend $500,000 on a home or homes in the United States, you're over 55, you, have, you can prove that you have your independent health insurance coverage or coverage from your home country, um, you can get a visa to remain in the U.S. for three years. Uh, you're not allowed to work on it, but that's the point of it. It's a retirement visa. And essentially what we've had for years is Europeans and Canadians um, basically kind of wink-wink abusing the tourist visa uh, programs, which are valid typically for 90 days at a time, uh, where they come and go and they, you know, they're reluctant to buy property in the United States because they don't know when the next time is that they're going to get turned away uh, from coming in. But that's in there. And then also an expansion of uh, the tourist visa options for Canadians who can now stay also if they're over 55 for eight months of a year in the United States, as long as they can show that they have a residence in Canada and in the United States at the same time something that's brand new. Um, I had a lot to do with working on the provisions that affect uh, doctors. Uh, and there's a whole section in there that is designed to encourage uh, more doctors to remain in the United States, that train in the United States, and to go to medically underserved areas around the country. And there are a lot of them. We've had a physician shortage in this country for years. Um, it is projected to get a lot worse. A lot of people don't realize that for now, almost a half a century, um, We've had a we, we've had more than 25% of the doctors that are training in this country are here on visas, and a, a, a good chunk of them go home. But some of them we want to stay, and this section is going to make it a lot easier for communities that are desperately in need of doctors to be able to uh, convince them to stay with some um, incentives that they have for green cards and uh, faster track processes. Um, you may have heard about the startup visa or not. That's uh, people are talking about. It is in the bill. Um, and it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a startup, it's a non-immigrant visa, meaning it's a temporary visa, but it can convert to a permanent residency visa. And it's really, I think, going to uh, spur entrepreneurship and um, create a lot of jobs uh, over time. But basically, it's a fairly straightforward um, set of rules. 
that if you are, have a significant ownership interest in a business that creates five jobs um, and you have qualified investors, angel investors, there's a long list of the different kinds of investors that are out there who invest at least $100,000 in your business, or you can show that your business, if, if it's already been running, has generated more than $250,000 in revenue, you can get a visa for three years uh, to run your business. Right now in the U.S., we have a uh, we ha everything has to be done by commercial investment treaties. So if you're from a country that doesn't have a commercial investment treaty with the United States that allows for an e-visa, for example, India, China, Brazil, uh, you know, and uh, uh, countries that uh, you'd be surprised that we don't have those treaties with, um, this is going to uh, allow for those folks to get non-immigrant visas. And then as there's more job creation. As there's more investment, as the revenue rises and you get to higher thresholds, you'll be able to qualify for a green card uh, in that same category. That's, by the way, called the X visa. So the, the W visa is new, the Y visa is new for the retirees, the X visa is for the investors. Um, some in my profession are, have been uh, not too happy about the, uh, about the sacrificing of the sibling uh, category on the family side and the green card lottery. Um, for me, I've been... Uh, I've never been a fan of the green card lottery. The siblings, I haven't been that bothered by that category going away, and I've been warning clients for years that it's that, that it's, it was on life support. But what it's replaced with, I like a lot, which is a new merit-based point system that will it, it will factor in some of the things that were in the green card lottery, like if you get some points if you're from a country that's under represented proportionally in the U.S. immigrant population, and you get points for having family members. But really the focus with the merit-based point system are you get a lot of points if you're very well educated, you get points if you've, had a, uh, if you've been in a, in a job for a long time and if you've advanced up through that job into higher and higher levels. Um, you, you have to take the TOEFL exam, uh, and well, you don't have to, but if you take the TOEFL exam and you score well, you get points for that, you get points for civic involvement, you get points for being an entrepreneur. Uh, in that system. So there are a lot of factors that are in there that I think are, are, are worthy of note. And I think that that's going to also be a, a much better uh, system than what we have now for those two categories that are going away. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we are going to be, for the tourism industry in the U.S., aside from the retiree visa, we're about to, if the bill passes, we'll have premium processing available for the first time for visa appointments at U.S. consulates abroad. And Really, since 9/11, I think that that's the, the the tourist industry is taking it one you know on the chin one after another, uh, as far as the process getting more and more difficult for people to actually come to the U.S. as tourists, which is you know it's about 18 million people a year. It's a pretty important part of the U.S. economy. Long waits to actually get appointments at U.S. consulates abroad, particularly in places like Brazil and China. Um, have been a problem. And even though it's somewhat controversial, the idea of having to pay more to get a, an appointment in what should be a reasonable amount of time, um, some people don't like. I think that uh, it's certainly better than making everybody wait in a long line. And I think that it's going to uh, it's going to help tourism. Um, on a completely different end, uh, and, and Alex, just somebody tell me when to stop uh, on there when I when I hit when I hit a time on there, because I have a list that I can cut off at any time. Um, but the uh, if you're on the immigration litigation side, um, in my practice, I'm not the I'm not handling deportation issues, but we have lawyers that do. And in the court in Memphis, which is one of the most backed up in the country, if you get into removal proceedings, it's about two years before you actually can get in front of a judge. 
Um, it's really bad, and it's, it's, it's getting worse across the country. <clears throat> Fortunately, there are provisions in the immigration bill um, that are designed to make the system run better. One of the things that's really helpful in there is a provision for 225 new immigration judges across the country, and that will make a real difference. Um, it's not that big of a, an immigration ju uh, judicial system that 225 is a pretty sizable expansion. The other thing that's new is um, premium processing, which is speedy processing for administrative appeals. You, where you basically can pay, again, pay an extra fee and you'll get your, you'll get your appeal decided in a matter of a few weeks instead of right now, 18 months. Um, so if you're an employer, for example, that has a key worker that you're trying to get an H-1B visa for, and the immigration service denies the case for whatever reason, and you decide, well, I need to, you know, we need to appeal this, um, you're going to be looking at a year and a half before that worker can get the visa. Well, how many employers are willing to wait a year and a half for a position that's supposed to be a temporary position? Um, premium processing to the AAO system, I think, is going to be something that's going to be welcome. Um, you may have heard about the H-1B visa. I'm sure most people know that that's the visa for professional workers in this country. Basically, you need a bachelor's degree. The H-1B visa expands, not as much as I think a lot of people are hoping, but it expands um, to 110,000 from 65,000. Um, but one of the things that is in there is another market-based elevator provision uh, that will allow the H-1B program to expand even further, up to 180,000 visas, depending on what's happening with the unemployment rate and what the demand is for H-1B visas. Um, so uh, if you watched the news a couple weeks ago, the H-1B quota for fiscal year 2014 opened up. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm just getting over a cold. Um, the visa, the 65,000 quota was reached in a matter of a week for the entire fiscal year 2014. Clearly inadequate. So the more numbers that we get there, the better. Um, but the way this new system would work, if it got reached that quickly, that would be a factor in terms of deciding how much the number would go up for the next year. Um, and the H-1B, I mean, there are some things in the H-1B program, don't get me wrong, that I'm pretty unhappy with that are that have made their way in. Um, for one, there are some pretty nasty uh, provisions in there that attack staffing companies. Um, I think there's been this mentality that there's something nefarious about using a staffing company model as an employment model in this country, even though we've had it for years and years. A lot of my clientele is in the healthcare industry, and in healthcare, We've been used to a staffing model for generations. A physician group is a staffing company, essentially, uh, that supplies doctors. For example, an anesthesia group supply is a staffing company that supplies outside anesthesiologists to a hospital. It's the same as a staffing company that's supplying programmers um, or teachers or accountants to another organization where it's not there, where that organization is not able to provide for themselves more easily. Uh, in fact, we have laws in healthcare, the, uh, it, the corporate practice of medicine laws around the country, which bar hospitals from actually employing doctors directly on there. Um, but and we see that in a lot of other industries. There's nothing wrong with, with staffing. If you run a business yourself, uh, in a lot of cases, you've staffed out. You don't, have your, you, don't, you don't have an accountant on staff if you're a small business. You may use a outside PR firm or advertising firm to help you with your marketing. There are all sorts of examples of where you use outside businesses to help you in areas that are not your core competency. But those companies that are providing those outside services get punished uh, with the H-1B provisions, which I think is unfortunate. Um, 
Also, there are some serious expansions of Department of Labor's uh, investigation powers uh, in the bill that I don't think have gotten a lot of scrutiny. Um, for one, uh, right now it's a, it's a complaint-driven process in the H-1B program, and um, now the Department of Labor under the bill would have the ability really to just go after uh, employers um, on its own, and they can stop a, uh, an H-1B process before it even starts by challenging the labor condition application, which is a prerequisite to filing the next step for the H-1B visa. And if the Department of Labor wants to take a year to go through its investigation, it's again like taking 18 months on an appeal. You know, it's a, it's a pyrrhic victory if you win. Great, you, you successfully fought off and, you know, and improved the Department of Labor. Everything was on the up and up, but it's already been a year or however long it takes the Department of Labor. You've lost that employee or you've lost that piece of business. Uh, it's not exactly um, not exactly fair um, to employers when you have that situation. And I would uh, think those provisions could be re redrawn in a way that don't punish the uh, em employers before they've had a chance to prove their innocence. Um, they're also tied to the H-1B, something really nice, um, which a lot of people haven't heard about, which is H-4 spouses will be able to get employment authorization if they are from a country that provides similar access to work authorization for Americans that work in that country. Um, I see that every day um, where people are coming, where there are couples that are coming to the United States, both are highly educated, and in some cases, where the, because of the H-1B caps, for example, the spouses, um, they, make the, they make the choice not to come to the United States or to really limit their time in the United States and go back because the, uh, the spouse staying home every day and watching Days of Our Lives is not the greatest option for somebody who has a master's or a PhD and has a, had a career in the home country. Uh, I think this is really going to be a powerful recruiting tool for American corporations looking for the best talent around the world. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to uh, mention on, on my list, and believe me, there are plenty of others, but um, one thing, I, and I, I've written some articles on this um, and really saw it twice during the recession after, uh, after the, um, after the uh, internet bubble burst and in this latest recession, um, a lot of times you'll see uh, employees, particularly on H-1B visas and other categories, get laid off when companies are having massive layoffs. And if you are an H-1B employee and your employment terminates, you are an illegal alien the moment you are taken off the payroll. I think a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that, that you can be, your company can render you illegal instantaneously. And some companies are sensitive to it and some are less sensitive to it. But it's really unfair because the employee at that point has no time to go and find another job. Or even if they have time, a little, get a little bit of notice to find another job, um, they have to have another employer sponsor a new H-1B visa for them to transfer in order for them to remain in status. And a lot of very talented people end up leaving the country because there's just not a, a way to, for them to transition to another employer after that. Um, the immigration service used to be relatively understanding. During the early part of the last decade, during that recession, the immigration service had an unwritten rule, essentially, that if it was less than 30 days that you're out of status, they, they had the power to excuse the delay and they would approve the change. They, have, they are not accommodating anymore uh, one second over uh, out of status, and you will not get uh, you will not get approved for the change of status. Now in this in the bill, uh, there's a 60 day grace period built in, which I think will be really nice. Hopefully, I don't have see too many people need to use it, but we will retain some of this talent here because of that, and it'll be a, a system I think that's a little less cruel. So that's those are the things I 
the little hidden gems that I found in the uh, the bill, but uh, and there are plenty of others if you re if you want to read through an 844 page bill. So, thank you. Well, thanks, Laura, and thanks to Cato for having me here. Um, I wanted to start with a little story. So, uh, my wife and I have four kids. We're not part of the population decline problem. But I was at uh, I think it was at Target the other day with my daughter and the the lady in the chat <coughs> said, um, wow, your daughter's so cute. Of course, she'd love to hear that as a parent. And I said, yes, she is. She said, your wife must be really gorgeous. And I went, yes, she is. So I'm wheeling the cart out, looking at my baby about halfway to the car, and I realized, why did she say that second thing? <laughs> so then I was at work and brought my daughter in the other day, and my, my assistant said, wow, I'm surprised. Your daughter's really smart. Wait a minute. I know where this goes. Your wife must be really smart. Like, okay, I get it. I'm not so smart. Um, my wife's an immigrant, and uh, and I'd like to think she made America a little prettier and a little smarter than it was before. She got an MBA here, um, but I, I've seen a lot of the problems um, that Greg's talked about. You know, but I've really come to this issue as someone with a military background. Uh, went to the Air Force Academy, served overseas, um, and. Uh, I'm, I'm really surprised that more people don't think about immigration in terms of what the real problem is, the real threat of immigration, and it's not economic. And I've studied the literature on this. Um, let, me, let me do this. Let me talk about the story this way, and I brought, brought up some props here. This is a book that was published 25 years ago, paperback version, Paul Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. Uh, Glenn Hubbard and I both love this book but we wanted to write a sequel from an economic perspective because economists know more about the world, even the ancient world. We've got better data now than we did when Paul wrote his book. And so this is forthcoming. It will be out actually a month from today called Balance, the Economics of Great Powers. And one of the things that Glenn and I found when we did our history, we did our economic history, is time after time, great powers, and I'm talking about ancient Rome, Ming China, the Ottoman Empire, the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, when they declined, it was always because of economic imbalance. It was not enemies at the gates. Enemies at the gates made them worry about losing their power or being invaded and then do stupid things economically where they would build walls. And we all know about Hadrian's Wall in Rome. We all know about the Great Wall in China. Um, but they would build economic walls too to cut themselves off. The Ming Chinese thought they'd learned everything about the rest of the world. You know, uh, Zheng He's treasure ships, when they came back after all those voyages, suddenly there was an emperor that said, we don't have anything great to learn anymore from the rest of the world, burned all the ships, and made it punishable by death to build an ocean-going vessel to leave China. That's a kind of wall against free trade. So what we worry about is America building economic walls, not just the literal walls, um, but the economic walls, the hostility to free trade that we see largely among Democrats, the hostility to immigration that we see, I think at least this is the media narrative, largely among Republicans, um, seeing restrictionism, economic restrictionism on immigration is self-defeating. Uh, the economics of this are in a world where we've got free trade agreements with Mexico, uh, there's going to be trade and a free flow. So a worker can be in Mexico and, and work at a factory and ship the goods here. Or we can have a guest worker program where they could come, pay taxes in America, work in an American company, help an, a company thrive here. The economic literature on this is pretty unequivocal, that there's not a risk 
to high-skill immigrants, more of them, the more the better, but there's really not an economic risk or damage to low-skill immigrants. They help the housing market. I think Greg made a great point here. So part of this book, again, is trying to make the point, let's not build economic walls because we're not going to decline in 10 years. America won't decline in 100 years. Decline of a great power at the heights that America's reached, that takes at least a century, probably two. But that doesn't mean our politicians aren't trying to go down that road. So we're going to try to get a little warning sign up there. Um, embrace openness. Embrace liberty. It's really worked for us in the past. I don't think we can talk about this issue without also talking about what's happened in Boston. Because the terrorism in Boston, a lot of people have said, see, these were immigrants. They were from a dangerous part of the world. They were from Russia. Um, you know, maybe we should be cautious. Great powers do that. They get cautious. Um, let me tell another little anecdote. R Julius Caesar was killed by a gang of eight senators, right? Thinking a gang of eight. Um, because Julius Caesar was open to immigration. He granted citizenship to non-Italians in the Roman Empire. And that was offensive to the elites in the Senate. So fortunately, our gang of eight is very different. They're open. Um, I'd like to think our president's open, but I don't see him embracing a lot of the common sense things like a guest worker visa. You know, we're still waiting for the White House to say thumbs up on a guest worker visa. That's the heart of what we need to do economically to make this program work. And it's in this bill, and it's very smart. Um, so there are, there are people that think what happened in Boston is, uh, is a sad day for immigration reform. I think it's actually something that should be addressed because security is the problem, right? And, and in the, I'm in the intel business. I was a human intelligence officer in the Air Force. Um, when you're looking for bad guys, you're looking for needles in a haystack. And the bigger that haystack is, the bigger your problem is. So if we have 10 million uh, illegal immigrants in the country that are here to work, to be good, um, good members of society, that pay into our tax system, and yet there's a whole market of forged documents and bad documents that they need to do to be here. Um, that's tremendous cover if you're a bad guy, whether you're trafficking drugs or whether you plan terrorism. And what frustrates me is we have a finite amount of government resources, and if so many of them are directed at solving a problem that's not a problem, I mean economic migration, and not directed at terrorists and, and criminals, um, you know, that's, that's danger waiting to happen. And I think those who know my background, I wrote about this at the Heritage Foundation in 2006. What's the real problem with immigration? That was our position, um, that it was the national security part. So when we think that, uh, you know, there's a Russian immigrant who came here as a child, a uh, scary person, you know who we're talking about? Sergey Brin, founder of Google. I think about half of companies in Silicon Valley have at least one immigrant co-founder. I'm citing this research correctly. I think nationally the number is 25%. So this idea of the startup visa is something that we pushed when I was at the Kauffman Foundation. I still have pushed now that I'm with the Hudson Institute here in DC. It's something that just makes the most sense in the world. When you look at someone like Sergey, thank God he was able to stay. Thank God that uh, he was here to create Google, that Google's not you know, a French company or a British company. So let's embrace that and realize the upside is so much bigger than the downside of migration. But let's focus then our resources, our national security resources, on doing the background checks and making sure that our, our three-letter agencies have the manpower to do their jobs. Um, I think that's what I've got. I'm going to leave time for Q&A. And uh, again, thanks, Cato, for having me here.
Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I'm going to be talking a little bit about how some of these portions of the, of the uh, immigration bill work together. Um, it's not an 844-page bill because it's long-winded or people are uh, trying to throw in everything in there. It's because it's trying to deal with very different parts. You have different legs of the stool. You have border security on one part and uh, employer verification. You have legal pathways to future immigration on one part. And then you have an earned legalization for the unauthorized immigrants in this country. So these three pieces are designed to work well together. We're designed to clear up the black market through a legalization program where it's designed to uh, decrease the black market going forward by providing border security uh, in E-Verify system and by increasing lawful migration to provide a legal pathway for people to come in the future, which is the thing that a lot of people just, I think, are missing on, in this bill. Now, part of the legalization procedures in this bill uh, tells that um, with uh, for uh, the registered provisional immigrants, for the people who are legalized uh, under this bill who are the current unauthorized immigrants, for them to go to the green card category, certain triggers have to be met. Now, one of these triggers is that there has to be 100% surveillance along the entire southwest border, which I think is probably an achievable goal. The other one is that for uh, border security, for, uh, for areas along the border that have more than 30,000 confirmed crossers every year, 90% of them have to be captured, uh, apprehended by Border Patrol uh, after capturing the border, uh, after crossing the border. Now, uh, talking to a lot of security experts, given the number of people who are coming across, a 90% apprehension rate, given the current numbers, is probably very difficult to impossible to achieve on its own just through a security mechanism. Now, what is... What can make these, you know, this 90% figure achievable is a large enough guest worker visa program to channel these would-be unauthorized immigrants into the legal market. So you take them away from crossing the border and you put them into a legal guest worker visa program that allows border security to actually achieve this 90% apprehension rate on the southwest border, which they did achieve uh, in the 1950s when they had a large guest worker visa program under the Bracero program. So that allows, by channeling people into the legal market, you can... Uh, you can uh, achieve these very high border <laughs> security standards. To give you an example of the degree of this problem, we are at a almost 40-year low in terms of the number of border crossers along the southwest border. Uh, last year, in fiscal year 2012, uh, there were only uh, three border sectors along the southwest border that had more than 30,000 um, alien apprehensions along them. They were the Laredo, Rio Grande Valley, and Tucson sectors. But to give you an idea of how close uh, or how many crossers there were, there were three other sectors that had between 20 and 29,000 crossers. And I think we could um, very easily imagine if there is an improvement in the U.S. economy, especially the housing market, that three more sectors could very easily cross that 30,000 uh, barrier, in which case the border triggers are going to be very difficult to meet. Now, the reason why I bring up these border triggers is the current W-1 guest worker visa program put forward in this bill. I think it's a great step in the right direction, but uh, I think the number one issue, and this is an issue that a lot of Republicans definitely understand, is it's not big enough. Uh, it starts off at 20,000 in 2015, goes up to 75,000 per year in 2019, and then if a, certain, uh, a new bureau called the Bureau of Labor Market Research determines that unemployment is below a certain level, they can ratchet that up to 200,000 a year. Now, 200,000 a year in these lower skilled industries is a zones one, two, and three uh, style industries. So they don't require you know, a graduate degree or a college degree or anything like that. 
Um, to give you an example of why I think 200,000 is inadequate per year, um, between the years of 2005, six and seven, more than 600,000 people a year successfully entered the United States as unauthorized immigrants to work in industries that these 200,000 people would be dedicated to. A lot of this uh, immigration driven by the housing market, uh, by the number of housing starts in the United States. So unauthorized immigrants going to work in either the construction industry directly or in industries supporting construction, things like uh, groundskeeper maintenance, uh, other sort of industries related to those. So if we want to make sure that these border security triggers are met, and the current unauthorized immigrants can go on and get their green card status, we need to create a larger, I think, guest worker visa program to accommodate a lot of them. Now, I think, uh, but I want to go into some of the other portions that I think are great, and Greg touched on some of them. I mean, the, the most important thing, I think, is the portability, the ability for guest workers to move between employers um, relatively easily. They've done that by registering employers and employees. I think that's a great thing. I, I wrote this um, policy analysis in January that actually um, used that as an example um, looking back at the World War I guest worker visa program, which had a very similar provision in it. Basically, if you were employed as a guest worker, you could switch employers as long as the employers are registered, and then you had to tell the government after you changed jobs. Now, that I think builds in labor market protections because people are more interested in looking out for their own good in the labor market as opposed to relying on government bureaucrats to look out uh, for it uh, for them. Uh, some other good things in this bill, it's a renewable guest worker visa program. It's three years. Uh, it's a new, renewable program. Um, and it's available for greater types <coughs> of sectors in the U.S. economy than are currently available for under current guest worker visa programs. Uh, one of those sectors of the economy is construction. So construction agents uh, industry can get up to 15,000 of these visas per year. Um, the construction industry was, as I said before, a big draw for unauthorized immigrants. The problem, of course, is that it's only 15,000. Um, we had 650,000 people crossing the border in 05, 06, and 07. So I, I would, um, you know, uh, if I could give some advice to people working on this bill, it would be to either increase the numbers or to exempt certain types of construction workers, as many as possible, uh, from the caps uh, going forward so that we can make sure that the industries that are actually employing low-skilled immigrant workers have the flexibility and can employ the numbers necessary to draw them out of the uh, illegal market. Uh, one of the interesting things is we hear a lot of people talk about agriculture. It's certainly an important part of this. A large number of people in the agricultural industry in the U.S. are unauthorized immigrants or low-skilled workers, but to give you an example, only about 5% of the current number of unauthorized immigrants are actually working in agriculture. If this was the 1950s, it would be somewhere above 90%. So the industries where they are working today are different than what they were 50 or 60 years ago. And I think our visa system needs to change to reflect that. Um, another thing that I want to go into some more detail is uh, some of the protectionist measures for the W visa, for this uh, low and medium skilled worker visa. If um, more than 50% of the employees in one of these businesses that wants to use one of these visas are not U.S. citizens, then they have to pay, it's, it's between 50 and 75%, they have to pay a $1,750 uh, sort of penalty fee. If it's greater than 75%, they have to pay a $3,500 fee. Now, this is clearly a protectionist measure that's meant to target certain American industries, certain American employers here for this type of visa. I think we can do uh, without that going forward. 
Uh, one of the ind- one of the issues also is uh, for metropolitan for employers within certain metropolitan statistical areas that have an employment rate over eight point five percent, their ability to hire uh, W visas is going to be substantially curtailed. <laughs> um, it says basically no W visas. Um, in this broad category of employers in these areas. Um, on its face, this probably isn't such a big deal and um, uh, sort of uh, goes along with what the current market system is, which is when there's a lot of unemployment, people don't hire a lot of immigrants. We saw that recently with the economic downturn. But uh, there could be some industries in depressed areas of the country that are doing pretty well and can't find the workers they necessarily need. So that might be a problem uh, going forward. Um, and furthermore, I want to talk about one fallacy that's commonly stated about guest worker visa programs. And I think the best example is what uh, Ramesh Panoru wrote yesterday in Bloomberg. Uh, and his piece was titled, New Immigration Bill Has One Terrible Flaw. Now, the flaw that he pointed out was that a guest worker visa program exists in the first place. And he seems to be very concerned about a notion of equality, that we're letting people live here, work here, and contribute, but not necessarily become citizens. Well, um, under the current bill, it's a pretty easy path, and I think Gray can talk some more about this, but it's a pretty easy path, uh, probably the easiest ever devised for guest workers to eventually get a green card um, on this system. So it's mostly a temporary thing. If they're guest worker visas, they come here, they can work for a while and eventually become citizens. Um, But I I question whether he wants millions of green cards issued per year for low-skilled immigrants coming to the United States, because that seems to be the alternative uh, type of system that he would uh, want to favor. Um, we're not going to be able to, uh, we, we like guest worker visas because they are a, or at least I do, because they are an alternative to a guest, to a green card system. And we're not going to get, you know, millions of green cards for low skilled immigrants like, you know, used to exist prior to the 1920s. Um, there's also enormous numbers of other visas like the F visa. Uh, for students who come here where they're not going to be granted any kind of citizenship. But I think the most important thing we need to ask is, if you don't like guest worker visas, you don't like them compared to what? The current system, if you're a low-skilled immigrant trying to come here, a low-skilled foreign worker, your choices are generally either come under a family system, in which case you have to be related to an American. Not a whole lot of people qualify for that. You either come in illegally or you don't come at all. Now, giving low-skilled immigrants or uh, migrant workers another choice to come here legally, temporarily, under a guest worker visa program, I think is a much better option if we're worried about issues of equality and citizenship and things like that. You know, more choice, I think, is um, uh, an idea of uh, more justice in our society. Also, the notion that this is a guest worker visas or sort of some kind of weird aberration from Western norms, that there's either citizen or non-citizen, I think betrays an enormous ignorance and how Western countries have dealt with immigration and foreigners living amongst them for thousands of years. Uh, and I do say thousands of years literally. The Athenians had a system, a Metoican system, of guest worker visas where people could live amongst them as guest workers, own property, and um, you know, act in every way except for politically as Athenian citizens. And this is the first democracy in the world um, you know, Western civilization is said to be founded on the twin pillars of Athens and Jerusalem. So I don't really think guest workers are too far in aberration from our origins as a Western civilization. Um, if you want to be even more specific, the British up through the Middle Ages had uh, guest worker type systems where they allowed uh, merchants to come in and live amongst them as less than citizens to work in their own property. Uh, they had a system in North America called denization, uh, denization which is a 
in-between pathway between citizenship and being an unauthorized uh, alien. And it basically allowed you all the economic rights without any of the political rights. So I think that a guest worker visa program is consistent with our values and our history as Western civilization. It's not some weird aberration that creates an un unfathomable political inequality that we just can't abide. And uh, these uh, criticisms uh, mainly fall flat. So thank you. We'll let you clap for them. We'll, we'll allow that today. I'll open it up to, to Q&A in just a minute, but I want to take my prerogative and ask you all a first question as my captive panel here. Hmm. Given that you've worked on this for, for a while, for a varying number of years, I'm wondering if there's anything in this bill specifically or the conversation about the bill that has stood out to you as a really good sign or something you're concerned about. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I would echo um, the flexibility of guest workers in this goes a long way towards alleviating that issue of second-class citizenship. So I just, I'm going to uh, piggyback um, on, on what was just said. I heard the idea of second-class citizenship when we were working on the bill, you know, a few years ago, the McCain-Kennedy bill. And it was really frustrating because the metaphor was, you know, slaves are second-class citizens. Let me make it very clear. Slaves are coerced labor. When you're talking about somebody who voluntarily wants to take a job somewhere, it's the opposite of coercion. Coercion is, you know, not letting them work, uh, blocking them out, limiting their opportunities, limiting the opportunities for American growth. And, you know, frankly, if you are worried about the budgetary problems of Social Security, you know, limiting the amount of people that are paying into that, that that's, that's really foolish. So second-class citizenship is something you'll hear a lot about a guest worker program. I couldn't agree more. It's an abuse of the notion of you know, human liberty, which I think is, is really at the heart that you should be trying to respect. Um, so the danger, though, is if you let somebody come in on a guest worker program and they can only work for international business machines, and then you know, their, their life depends on um, that their boss doesn't get upset with them because they don't just lose a job, right? They lose everything. Um, so f to give a worker the flexibility to leave international business machines and go to Apple, for example. I think that's a huge improvement uh, away from, it totally obliviates the, the phrase of second-class citizen in this. Um, and another just pushback on this is, uh, uh, are tourists second-class citizens? Or do we have to give all them citizenship? Or should we block all tourists, right? I mean, that, that's, it's the ridiculousness of having somebody on your sovereign territory doesn't mean they have to be citizens or else they're, they're somehow abused if they're coming voluntarily. <clears throat> Thanks. I think the one thing that's um, this kind of struck me in this whole debate is, you know, back in 1986, um, when the last time we seriously uh, looked at redesigning the immigration system, um, it was essentially the three pillars that you were talking about were being discussed. Enforcement, um, uh, dealing with the legalization. Uh, at that time, there were about 3 million people, not 10 million people, um, and guest workers. And they were able to hammer out a deal on legalization and enforcement. And the I-9s that uh, all of you have filled out every time you've had a job, that's, it comes out of a 1986 act. Um, but they couldn't reach a deal on guest workers. And the thought was, let's just get what we can get done. And in a year or two, we'll come back to guest workers and deal with it. Mm -hmm. 10 million people later, we are dealing with it in 2013, 27 years later, 28 years later. Um, and we've come back to it, and we're doing the exact same thing again that we did in 1986. 
You know, 20,000 workers is all we get at the beginning of this program. It goes up to 75,000 after five years. And then maybe, maybe if, and you didn't even get into like this crazy system, formula system that's been worked up to try and get from 75,000 up to 200,000 on there, which I frankly am very doubtful that we're going, it's very politicized the way that it's going to work. Um, but I'm, I'm really, I love this bill, but I'm really saddened that I think in probably about 10 years time, we're going to be right back having this conversation of why do we have millions of people here illegally working? And obviously, 2013's Immigration Act was a huge failure because we have illegal immigration again, and it's going to be blamed on, you know, legalization did nothing and all that. But we are, we're going right down that road again. And unless we have a guest worker program that actually functions to meet the needs of the economy, we are, we're just repeating history. Yeah. And, and, and so, Greg, we're supposed to say what we liked. No, <laughs> but it puts in a mechanism, right? It puts in a mechanism that doesn't exist now that can be adjusted upwards. And I think you're right. But there's a cap. Criticism. I agree. Right. So, you know, and, and to the point that there's uh, my concern is that we get a big bill passed and then it becomes a political football. I think if there are uh, conservatives that don't believe in caps, especially in the House, let's see that piece of legislation go forward, because especially we can get consensus in this country, and polls show this overwhelming consensus. I did a paper that surveyed every think tank in D.C. Every think tank agrees with the idea of having more high-skill migrants, right? So let's have uncapped high-skill immigration um, full stop and have that pass the House. And if this fails, if the big comprehensive idea fails because it becomes a political hot potato, I hope some of those great ideas, which would be perfect building blocks, don't fail. One of the things that has struck me the most is when we discuss these low-skill guest worker visa programs, the W-1 visa, one of the most common comments I get is, well, that's not enough. The numbers aren't great enough. And I get that from mainly Republicans, a lot of the Republicans I've been talking to on this issue. And that, I think, is a huge difference from six years ago when we were talking about uh, immigration. I think people now, there's a greater recognition that if we want to halt unauthorized immigration going forward, we need to provide a legal way for people to come in now who are, you know, in the same sort of a skill category, who are working in the same industries. So people recognize that if we need to stop that, it's not going to be through an enforcement-only mechanism. It is incapable of doing that as long as there's a robust economy in the United States. What they need is a legal pathway. And so I get frequent comments. Everyone is sort of, uh, I think Greg was great to point out, you know, everyone is assuming that 200,000 is going to be the limit in, in 2020. But, uh, you know, you have to jump through a lot of bureaucratic hoops to get there. But just assuming best case scenario, it is 200,000, it probably isn't enough. And I think there's widespread recognition of that amongst people, especially in the House of Representatives, mm. who uh, know a lot about this issue, who understand this issue. And I think, um, you know, there could be some opportunities to increase the numbers, either through making certain exemptions or hopefully just increasing the numbers, but uh, that's probably going to be very difficult. Mm -hmm.